Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. I want to keep bringing y'all high-quality content, but I cannot do that without your support. So please, help buy me a cup of coffee every month and join the Ward Republic by chipping in $5 per month through the supporting listener link in the show notes page. I am not part of a fancy podcasting network, and I don't like the restrictions that come along with certain advertising campaigns. So I am coming to y'all with my hat in my hand. So please help me keep this show going and keep it independent by doing your part and chipping in. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I do also have a Cash App profile for the show. So one-time contributions can be sent there. And all of this information is listed in the show notes page as well. And don't forget that Ward Republic membership includes a monthly video conference with myself and the other Ward Republic members. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold bags. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page, and if you use it, I will get a 1% commission, so that'll also help keep the show going. So click on my link in that show notes page and fuel monetary decentralization today. And if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. Today, by popular demand in the Shows MeWe group, we're going to put our tenfold hats on and we're going to speculate about the Great Reset. Now, it seems many people in libertarian circles think that it will be almost exclusively driven by governments around the world, and that does have some credence, but I think it will unfold somewhat differently, and I'm going to read y'all a few things from around the internet that I believe substantiate my claim. Before we start, I do want to disclose, obviously, everything I say in this episode is subjective and my personal viewpoint, and this is ultimately an act of prediction. So I hope more than anyone else that I am proven wrong in my thinking here, and I will gladly eat that crow should that be the case. Now, let's get started. All right, so first off, I think that corporations, you know, so-called private corporations, are going to play a major role in the Great Reset. Now, since we recently did a series of episodes against the corporate form, it should not come as a shock to anyone listening that I am no fan of corporations. As they pertain to the Great Reset, I actually believe that private corporations will be the main executives of the agenda. To fuel the rampant speculation required to send gross stocks ever higher, and thereby keeping the Ponzi-esque roulette game going, corporations have become desperate to drive their revenues higher and higher and higher. And the primary way they've done this is by putting an ever-increasing number of their products and services on subscription models. This means you will never own the product or service in question, or in other words, you will own nothing and you will be happy. Now, y'all may hear that and say, well, Mr. Jeffersonian, that's really not a big deal. You know, I pay my Netflix subscription every month and I love the content that I gain access to. Or maybe your mind goes immediately to Amazon Prime and the convenience of two-day shipping and all the movies and shows on Prime Video. Or maybe even their photo storage, the, the photo cloud storage that Amazon offers. Fair enough. And I hear you. But what does this mean when corporations start doing this to single-family houses or cars or video games or basically any other facet of life or every facet of life? 
So what we're going to be looking at is going to come primarily from an article in the New York Times. It's called Wall Street $60 billion housing grab. But we're also going to look at some articles from the New York Post. So I'm going to draw this from a variety of different sources. That way you're not going to just say, oh, well, look, it's the New York Times. Yeah, clearly they're, they're just a liberal rag. Don't listen to them. So to first make my case for corporations being the dominant driver in the Great Reset, we're going to specifically look at the rise of the corporate landlord and why that is a cause for major concern for anyone who believes themselves to be liberty-oriented because liberty has to flow up from property. The agrarians taught us that. You must have somewhat distributed ownership of property for a free system to maintain itself or have the condition to be maintained. So let's go ahead and take a little bit deeper look here. We're going to start with a brief history lesson. So prior to the 2008 financial crisis, corporate landlords did not really exist in the single-family rental market. So if you had a single-family home, normally if it was a rental property, it was owned by an individual or a family. Once the foreclosures came rolling in, though, these companies started getting the bright idea to scoop them up on the cheap, and this behavior received a major boost in 2011 when Morgan Stanley published a document titled A Rentership Society, and I will include a link to that document. Now, in this document, Morgan Stanley signaled to institutional investors a major opportunity to increase returns and consolidate ownership of real property with permanent income through rental payments. There are five major players in this market that we will mention today. Those are going to be Invitation Homes, American Homes for Rent, Progress Residential, Main Street Renewals, and Colony Capital. Now, what do corporate landlords do? So what really makes them different from individual owners? Well, they currently focus their attention in what they call highly competitive markets, and they have helped fuel a $60 billion residential real estate grab that has, at least in part, caused housing prices to soar while leaving would-be individual owners in the dust. Now, these corporations will normally go in and they'll buy properties for anywhere up to about 20% over the market price or over the asking price. How are individuals supposed to compete with that, especially when you get younger families? And this is where it gets so devastating. When you have younger families, how are they going to compete with that? You're paying for a car loan, right? Unless you have a car that's paid off, which hopefully is the case. But let's be real here. In most cases, you're paying for a car loan. You're paying for rent. Most people now are paying off student loans. How are they going to win a bid that's up to 20% more than what the person is asking for who's selling it? Keep that question in mind. Now, this is the most recent data that I could find, but as of 2020, the estimated number of single-family houses owned by corporations in the United States was 300,000, of which a specific company called Invitation Homes owns approximately 80,000. Now, that 300,000 number represents 0.3% of all single-family homes in the U.S., so this sounds like it would have a minuscule impact on rent or property values, right? If, if you're going to say, well, Mr. Jeffersonian, look, out of 100%, you're talking about 99.7% of the market is still not under this influence. But let's dig a little bit deeper and look at the strategy that these companies use or these corporations use. Now, what they do, and this is coming from an article in the New York Post, these corporations don't just randomly buy properties, right? They like to concentrate their efforts. So they th think of it basically as acquiring a full color set in the board game Monopoly. 
This creates a huge outsized impact in local housing markets. Now, across the board, across the entire United States, you could look at it and say, okay, well, look, they don't really have too much of an impact on rent. But in the areas where they choose to concentrate their efforts, that's where they have a tremendous outsized effect. So what they do is they go in there, buy up these houses, and then they immediately start raising rent. So, for example, a combination of four corporations now owns over 700 houses in Spring Hill, Tennessee, and this represents roughly 5% of that local market. And so I'm going to repeat this. We have to remember it's not necessarily that they have a huge impact across the entire market as of yet. It's the localized effect because they go in there with a target to buy up so many properties in any given area. Now, Invitation Homes specifically, they have 16 key markets that they have invested in and that they want to acquire more property in. Actually, here in Colorado Springs is getting to be one of those. We have, I think, about four or five houses in my area right now that have invitation home signage up in front of it. So that's what they do. They, they d concentrate their resources. They buy in these areas that they think are going to be high traffic, really competitive, and will always be filled. So that's what we have to remember. 0.3% across the board, not really a big deal right now. But what is the localized impact? Well, in the case of Spring Hill, the average rent for a three-bedroom, two-bathroom home went from approximately $1,000 a month up to about $1,800 a month in a span of less than five years once these corporations moved in there and started buying up so much property. Now, at a real estate investing conference, American Homes for Rent CEO David Singlin said that the average income for applicants to his company's homes had risen from $86,000 to $91,000 in one year and that this was a sign that rents have room to rise. Singlin also went on to say this, quote, this is a choice they make to pay rent. Talking about the tenants, this is a choice they make to pay rent, and their wherewithal to pay rent today as well as pay rent in the future with increases is sufficient. It's just up to us to educate tenants on a new way that there will be annual increases, end quote. And to illustrate how ruthless American Homes for Rent can be in pricing, one family in Spring Hill saw their rent increase by a whopping 35% over a three-year stretch. And that was the first three years that American Homes owned that property. So this is one of the first very obvious problems. When you have these corporate landlords, they have shareholders, usually big institutional shareholders like public pensions, other corporate retirement assets, and all that good stuff. So they have shareholders to satisfy. The people who actually occupy the property be damned. We have to meet revenue goals. Versus if you have a, an individual or a mom and pop landlord, they are not going to have the same incentives to increase rent that dramatically. Now, right now, because inflation is getting so bad, yes, maybe you would experience slightly faster rental increases, but they're not going to have the incentive to do that every single year to meet abstract revenue goals they are going to be much more willing to work with you as an individual if something were to happen. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later on in the episode. But let's look at some of the other corporate bad behavior that these companies have engaged in. So to start this section, former Colony CEO Fred Tuomi once declared, quote, not getting every charge that you are legitimately due under leases is revenue leakage, end quote. And accordingly, in 2016, Colony made $14 million in fees and an additional $12 million on retained security deposits and what they called other tenant clawbacks. I couldn't find exactly what that meant. But this is ancillary to the base rental revenue that the company took in, with Tuomi describing the situation thusly, quote, 
Ancillary revenue is the first kind of low-hanging fruit, end quote. So let's look at some of these types of ancillary revenue that he's talking about and that these companies went after. So Colony implemented a mandatory online payment portal. This is in 2017. Colony implemented a mandatory online payment portal for its tenants and charged them a $121 convenience fee for using said mandatory portal every single month. Now, if the government did that, we would be all up in arms saying, well, look, this is a government-created monopoly. This is not fair. But that's essentially what Colony is doing. They're saying, if you rent a property from us, you're going to use our online portal to make your payment, and we're going to charge you a fee for the convenience of it. That is disgusting behavior. That is totally disgusting behavior. But it gets better. Now, this is sort of a nickel and dime fee, but what these companies would also do in many cases is they would set up what's called conveyance fees, now, what does that mean? Well, what would happen is the corporation would set up all the utilities for any given house in the corporate name, and then they would charge the tenant a $9.95 delivery or conveyance fee for forwarding the bill to them every single month. So just those two fees, in addition to your base rent, we're already up to $130 a month in fees. Now, third, they would charge monthly appliance fees when the home appliances were furnished by the corporation instead of the tenant. So I don't know how most people listening to this are going to feel, but if you think that places like Aaron's Rentals and things of that nature are sort of scams, that's exactly what the corporation was doing here. If you had appliances furnished by them, they're going to charge you a fee for that every month. Now, as it was uncovered throughout a lot of study in these articles, they would hardly ever update the appliances or anything else. So they're charging you for something they've already bought and paid for, and then they never update it. They just can continue to charge basically monthly rental fees for it. And then tenants were automatically opted into a smart lock fee, wherein the company charged them roughly $20 a month for maintaining a digital smart lock. That, again, was a one-time cost to the company. So if your base rent amount in the contract is $2,000 per month, these ancillary fees are adding up to $150.95 per month or an additional $1,811.40 per year are being added to your housing cost. And you are getting none of the benefits of the built-up equity in the property like the corporations are getting that they can then turn around and use to leverage to buy more properties. Now, late fees of $50 were coupled with delivery fees of $35. So what would happen is if you were late on your payment you would have a $50 late fee, but then because the company notified you, they would tack on an additional $35. That's $85 for missing one payment or being late on one payment, not even per se missing it. Legal fees are also passed on to the tenant anytime eviction proceedings are started by the corporation, whether the attorneys end up doing any work or not. So if you are severely late on your payment and they say, hey, we're thinking about eviction, if they even say that word, they would charge you the legal fee whether or not they actually proceed it. In some cases, the corporations would also tack on landscaping fees, as if you can't mow your own grass, monthly pool fees, and monthly pet fees. So if you want to have a dog or a cat, you got to pay us an additional $50 to 100 bucks a month. And these fees would be buried in leasing contracts that routinely exceed 40 pages. The only time I've ever rented a house, I had a landlord that I personally knew. His name was Bobby. But we still went through his property management company to make everything official because we were in the military at the time, my wife and I, and he was actually in our chain of command. So we made everything official. We abided by all the contracts. 
But the contract that we signed with his property management company was literally one and a half pages. We had to include one month's rent for the security deposit and then no other fees besides the base rent were assessed. And while we were living there, and this is what I was saying, this is where you get the benefit of individual interaction, human interaction between yourself and an individual landlord or mom and pop landlord. So while we were living there, the refrigerator that was originally in the house when we moved into it stopped working. It just went out. And it happened overnight, so we lost a good bit of food to spoilage. Now, Bobby not only replaced that refrigerator at no charge to us, but he also felt terrible about the situation and the refrigerator going out that he actually personally wrote us a check to replace all the food that we lost. I thought that was awesome. You're not going to get that from a corporation. They're actually going to look at ways to charge you because it's like, well, it's probably your fault that the appliance went out anyway. And even though we've been taking that monthly appliance fee, uh, we're going to need you to pony up at least half the cost for this. And we're sorry about the food waste. Unfortunate, but nothing we can do there. So you don't get that. When you have a mom and pop landlord and when they care about their tenants, they actually do really awesome things like what Bobby did for us. And I'm still to this day, I'm, I'm blown away at how kind Bobby treated us during that situation. Because like I said, it happened overnight and we really didn't have an expectation that it would happen because that refrigerator was still somewhat new. So it was very surprising when it did happen, but Bobby was awesome throughout the entirety of that process. Now, maintenance at these corporate properties is frequently ignored or pushed onto the tenant to increase profitability, again, for the corporation shareholders, which in many cases, as I said before, are institutional groups such as public pensions or private equity firms or corporate asset, uh, excuse me, or corporate retirement accounts not individuals. That's the main takeaway. Who owns these corporations? It's not individuals. It's not the millions of individual shareholders. It is large institutional investors. And then corporate landlords have also benefited tremendously from the inflation of the past several months, as they have used it as a justification to implement rent increases of up to 30% in some markets, even though their debt obligations are mostly of the artificially low fixed rate type for their residential properties. And I say artificially low because, as we all know, the Federal Reserve monkeys around with rates and they hold it artificially low, which creates an artificial boom. And then that is subsequently followed by a bust at some point. Now, the point of this rant. So to summarize my scoring towards corporations being able to purchase single family houses, the issue is that they have all the artificial benefits of the corporate form that we've already dis discussed and they can act as a vacuum for property. So again, these companies have bought up over 300,000 homes in barely more than 10 years. A hundred years from now, will anyone be able to own a house? In addition, unlike an individual landlord, these corporations have millions of shareholders to satisfy and will ruthlessly nickel and dime people to the brink of ruin to extract rent and other miscellaneous fees. This kills the biggest wealth building tool that many Americans have, which is their home. And it consolidates more wealth and more power into the hands of the plutocrats, as the agrarians would have called them. And people are being relegated to serfs in this manner, with the only difference between them and their classical counterpart being that they may pick which lord they want to be oppressed by or serve under, and the corporate creatures of D.C. are reaping the full benefit of the Cantillon effect caused by the relentless printing of funny money over the past two years. But now to pivot our attention a little bit, this is not confined to housing, right? So it's already bad enough because like I've mentioned with the younger generation, they're starting their lives off buried in debt, which is incredibly unfortunate. But this is not going to be confined to the housing market. 
So now we're going to talk about 5G and the future of smart cars. Now, before I start this, I am not a person who thinks that 5G in and of itself is going to be this big, bad monster. I, I don't believe that at all. However, with the rise of 5G connected devices, that's where I have some concerns, specifically with the auto market. So auto manufacturers are now salivating at the capabilities that they foresee with this new technology and the rise of what are being called smart cars. Tesla has been doing this for quite some time, actually, since they came into existence. But other car makers are starting to understand the potential for cars that never stop producing them revenue. This is going to be achieved by putting multiple features that are a one-time cost to the company on a subscription basis, which results in a permanent expense to the customer. Again, you will never truly own the vehicle. Unlike now where you can, after you get done paying the loan, or if you're blessed enough that you can buy it in cash, which is great, you can own it. No, in the future, it's going to be that you will always have to pay a subscription for it. So auto manufacturers like BMW are tinkering with this idea most prominently. They want to charge monthly subscriptions for things like heated seats. That's a literal thing. BMW is wanting to charge a monthly subscription for you to have heated seats or maybe an annual subscription, but either way, a subscription for you to keep your heated seats that you get when you first purchase the car. And they've even gone as far in the past, BMW has, as trying to charge an $80 annual subscription fee for Apple CarPlay. Now, Apple does not charge car makers to install this software. It's free for them to install it, and drivers use the technology through a free app installed on their phones. So why does BMW feel like it's entitled to $80 a year from however many thousands of BMW owners there are out there to keep this thing operational? They're not paying for it, and the customer's not paying for it. Apple makes this available for free. So why should BMW get any cut of that? Why should they be entitled to any sort of revenue from it? Well, their customers thought the same thing, and customer outrage forced BMW to stop this fee in 2019. But their vision still remains of being able to sell more base model vehicles that offer subscription-based OTA updates and upgrades once 5G becomes more ubiquitous. And look, if you want proof of this, just type in BMW wants to charge subscriptions. There are all kinds of things that they're looking at putting on a subscription model and basically saying, look, we're going to provide these things as OTA upgrades. And if you want to keep it, you're going to have to pay us every single month and it can be as cheap or as expensive as you want. But that is crap, especially in the case of heated seats. Again, that is a one-time cost for the company. They buy the parts necessary to make the car have that feature. They install it. That's it. It's done. They sell the car to you, and they are done with it. But no, that's not what they want. They want cars that will produce them revenue forever, or at least for the entire lifetime of the car. This is potentially going to just completely destroy the younger generation's ability to own a set of wheels. Not right now, maybe not even in the next five years, but let's say 10 to 15 years from now, maybe 20 years, when these cars are dominating the used market as well as the new market, how are young people supposed to be able to afford a car? How are they going to get back and forth to work? Oh, public transportation? Well, you know what? We have our own qualms with that because it's not, it's not as efficient as what it's pitched, and it costs a lot of taxpayer money to build it. So how are they supposed to own a car? And another example of what the future car market might look like can actually be found by looking at the farming community. 
So for years now, actually going on roughly 10 years, maybe a little bit more, John Deere has been treating farmers atrociously when it comes to right to repair and now even to operate machinery that the farmer allegedly owns. Proprietary software and intellectual property rights have been Deere's major sticking points in forcing farmers to use Deere dealerships for simple repairs that require clearing software codes and the like to make the machine operational. And again, compare this dystopian future to the current model where one can purchase a car, pay it off, and then own it outright with the only ongoing expenses being fuel, maintenance, and insurance. If corporations can assume control of your mobility and your housing to a noticeable extent, they have a claim on your income very similar to that of governmental taxes, actually maybe even more onerous. So right now, the conventional rule of thumb is you want to keep your housing expenses every month to approximately 30% of your budget. Now, most people in America don't pay 30% in income taxes. Now, all taxes combined, yeah, they probably pay well over 30%. But a lot of people in America don't don't pay an effective income tax rate of 30%. But if a corporation can levy rent increases every single year on you, hell, who knows? Maybe two years after you move into the place, your rent now consumes 50% of your budget based on how quickly these rents have been rising. So that is a very insidious thing because they're going to take away, again, mobility, or not take it away, but they're going to severely restrict mobility because they're going to restrict access to who can actually get one, and they're going to control housing because it's like, hey, we bought up all these properties, pay us money. Now, the government can send you to jail or put you in a cage if you don't pay your taxes. Corporations can't really do that as of yet. They're, we don't really have too much of a debtor's prison system anymore. But what they can do is repossess their property. So if you get if you do manage to get a car and then you skip out on paying some of the payments, then they can come back and repossess the car. Or let's say if you bought the car outright, but you stop paying some of the subscriptions, well, what happens if a car company ever decides to put the starter on a subscription? So if you want to keep the ability to start the car, you got to pay them, let's say, 100 bucks a month in perpetuity. You'll never own it. So what happens if you try to hotwire it or what happens if you stop paying the subscription? Well, it stops working. And then if they won't, maybe they can include it in the contract that if you stop paying the subscription for the starter, well, they can just come and repossess it because they think maybe it would be more efficiently utilized elsewhere and you're not using it anyway. Or like in the case of John Deere, if you try to hotwire it or get around the software, then they can sue you and take you for all you have because you're messing with their intellectual property. So it's a very dystopian future that we have to look forward to if we continue down this path. And sadly, millions of people are voluntarily going along with all of this. So when I worked in a bank, I can't tell you how many people I talked to who could not understand why anyone would ever want to purchase a car instead of leasing it. And many people have adopted a mindset that home ownership makes no sense because they prefer the so-called flexibility of renting so they can move at the drop of a hat. And in my opinion, at least, this all ties into a horribly morally bankrupt and sick society. There are no roots or ties that bind for so many people now, and the value of being a citizen of your state or even the country has lost almost all of its meaning. Think about the digital nomad trend that we're seeing now, where people say, well, I'm just going to seek out the place that's most free. Destroying family units, you're, again, for, further atomizing every individual and breaking down all forms of a polite society, for lack of a better term. 
So we're breaking all of this stuff down and people are willingly going along with it. And yet libertarians and conservatives alike have the audacity to sit back and wonder why we're rolling downhill like a snowball headed for hell to quote Merle Haggard. So again, is there any need to really wonder about that when we're doing this to ourselves? We're willingly going along with it because it's convenient. It's fast. It's easy. It's cheap. Cheap is debatable, but why are we surprised when we are being willing accomplices? We don't have a society based on individual property rights anymore. We have a society part and parcel for the benefit of corporate interest. As long as the business interest is happy, hey, we're the rest of us are totally happy because when conditions are good for business, conditions are good for everybody. That's not always the case. That is not always the case at all. We've seen so many instances, especially this last two years, where it made more sense for the business to be the enforcer of the government and target the government as its primary consumer versus the individual people. And that's not a good thing. That is not a good thing. Again, we are completely destroying civilization, or at least Western civilization, over these abstract ideas of egalitarianism and corporatism. It's industrialism run amok. And I know at least a couple of y'all out there are probably listening to this and saying, wow, Mr. Jeffersonian, whew, you're, you're really sticking it to businesses. Like, you, you really think it's that bad. And, and I do want to elaborate on this. So again, I worked in a bank for several years before I started doing this podcast. And I talked to people day in and day out. And I saw people who were already trapped in this sort of a system. And it is terrible. It is terrible. Like I said, now I'm 29. I still consider myself young. But when I would talk to people who were, let's say, ages 18 up to about 23, it was heartbreaking because those people are derided as basement dwellers and they can't ever get out of their mom and dad's house and this, that, and the other. But what realistic prospects do they have? We have killed, we have killed opportunity in this country for many people. Now, you can still potentially get lucky if you're a hotshot software coder or something like that. Yeah, you may get a great idea and you may be able to sell out to Microsoft or one of the other big guys. And yes, you'll be well taken care of or maybe you become the next Facebook. But we have killed so many opportunities. It is so hard to start a business now. It is so hard to acquire the means to buy a home. And a lot of people, again, that's homes are like the biggest and most decentralized form of wealth production that still exist because people can buy a house and I'll give you an example. My house, I bought it at the end of 2015 for about $168,000 right now. It is estimated by our lender that we could sell it for about 395,000, maybe up to about 410,000 if we decided to sell at this moment. Now we're not going to, but that's the kind of equity that is the kind of wealth generation that you can look at because what can people do with that? Well, if your home rapidly rises in value, you can leverage your home. You can take out a second mortgage. You can try to start that business. You can do this. You can do that. Now, I think it's risky because you're betting that the value of your home is not going to decrease, but it gives you an outlet. It gives you a very powerful tool to try to start your own business or to try to engage in whatever endeavor you want to engage in. You can leverage that equity and actually buy another house and start your own small rental empire. And all of that is being taken away. And then you get this situation, especially with the younger generation, where they graduate. And like I mentioned before, they're already encumbered in so much debt. They have car loans, student loans, rent that is insanely expensive. And it's so 
heartbreaking to me because they don't have prospects. And when you don't have prospects, you start to lose hope. And think about what we're seeing, especially with the younger generation. It's a generation without hope. I would say millennials and I guess Gen Z is, is the generation after us. Millennials and Gen Z are very, very cynical. When I would talk to them at the bank, again, very cynical in their outlook. They are very jaded, and it's sad because this is what we've come to. Selling out everything, making everything a securitized and tradable asset and nothing more than that is rotten. It is rotten to its very core because if a corporation based, let's say, in New York owns a home out here in Colorado... That boardroom doesn't care about the people who live there. They care about the asset, and they care about what they can get if they decide to trade that asset. And it's disgusting. It is anti-humanist. It is very much so Hamiltonian and corporatist. And yet we have so many people willingly going along with it, even libertarians to an extent, not all of them, but some libertarians are the biggest corporate defenders you will find because they're like, well, look how, how much good can be done by all this wealth in the hands of a private company. Never stopping to think about the long-term impacts to the health of society because a lot of them will say that society doesn't exist. Society is nothing but a conglomeration of individuals and you have just millions of individuals making millions of individual choices. Well, yes, but we all do have a lived reality together. Whether we want to or not, we do have a lived reality that occurs together. And it can be good, it can be bad, it can be somewhere in the middle. But what we're doing right now is destroying, destroying the very fabric of what it meant to be an American all the way up through the 1860s at least. I would actually argue up until about 1940. But that's what's happening here. That's what's at stake. In my opinion, this is going to be the major executive push within the Great Reset. It's not going to come from the government. It's going to come from people selling out more and more to corporations. The government will have some play in this, but the people are just going to willingly sign themselves into serfdom. But all that said, I do think the government will have a role to play in all of this. But despite what ANCAPs think, I don't believe that governments will be the big bad boogeyman of the Great Reset, as I've already made clear. Now, the Federal Reserve will be a huge factor in determining monetary policy and the allocation of funds once the funny money is printed. We've already seen that over the past two years. Corporations and businesses of all sizes got billions upon billions of bailout money, and individuals only got a small sliver, comparatively speaking, of course. But with that said, I don't think the government wants the headache of trying to outright nationalize every facet of our lives. Now, yes, they are megalomaniacs. They like power for its own sake. But why go through the potential societal upheaval and unrest when you can just offload this to corporations and get people to do it willingly? So, so corporations have become centralized and supermen that millions upon millions of people rely on now for food, travel, and increasingly housing. We've already made that case. So again, why try to target 330 million individuals if you're the government when instead you could just target a few thousand corporations and take those over through regulation or whatever the case may be or barriers to entry and just let them do it because the people will embrace it with open arms. Now, all throughout the COVID nightmare, Joe Mussolini made it clear that the general government was relying on corporations to function as the executive branch. And by and large, they complied for several months throughout 2021. Willingly or unwillingly, honestly, does not matter to me because the fact remains that a lot of them complied. 
They took action to shield themselves and became the enforcers of government policy. This is not a free market, but libertarians have mostly refused to hit the root with the axe and acknowledge that it's time to bring down the corporate form because corporations ultimately are creatures of the state. And in my opinion, the biggest threat that the government is presenting on this front right now, in this moment, is the creation of a central bank digital currency. This will give them the power to turn people's money on and off with the stroke of a key. I did an episode on that topic back in episode 60, so I'm not going to belabor it here, but suffice it to say that this, a central bank digital currency would fully fuse government and economy and allow the government to control access to capital for individuals and businesses alike. Thankfully, that hasn't come to fruition yet, but to that extent, it's critical that people start considering practical ways to separate themselves from the U.S. financial system as much as possible. Now, some people think the best way to do that are private cryptos like Bitcoin, Ethereum, things of that nature. But I do personally think those will be taken over by the government, either through legislation or through open market operations. I actually think the path of least resistance for the government to take out cryptos if they want it to would just be to start purchasing them on the open market and basically take them out of circulation. I, I, don't, I think that would be a lot more effective from their point of view than trying to regulate it out of existence. Because if you regulate it, it's just going to create a tangled web of loopholes and all that stuff. So if they really want to get rid of it, I think the easiest way for them to do it is just to start buying it on the open market through, let's say, clandestine accounts. That's why, personally, I'm such a big fan of goldbacks or other hard-backed money. Because those are tangible and they can be stored completely offline with no access outside of someone physically showing up to try and take it. And in my opinion, the last major role that the government will have is through the court system. And we're going to see how willing they are to uphold corporate property rights or corporatist policies as the economy moves more and more to a permanent rental society. So this wraps up my thoughts on how the Great Reset will be implemented. It's not going to be through major governmental action, but more of a slow and steady shift to a permanent rental economy where corporations own a majority of wealth-producing assets like single-family homes and motorized methods of transportation. Through this, they will chip away at people's monthly incomes until there's just enough left to buy bread and circus, which will lead to increasing calls for a government takeover of critical industries like healthcare as people seek relief in the monthly budget. This will also strip people of the ability to save and we will be reduced to a country of wage slaves with no hope of business or home ownership. And I know that this episode was bleak, but I'm, I'm telling y'all, I'm very cynical about this particular topic. That's why I haven't really talked about it before. And I have my doubts that Americans are willing or able to fight this off before it gets entrenched especially since even some of the liberty-oriented folks won't even acknowledge that this is a problem. But, as always, with all that being said, thank you again for your time and for tuning in. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your goldbacks today. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.